0: By reading a passage from Ida LaShan's book, O To Be 50 Again. Um, Some of you may be familiar with the writings of psychologist Ida LaShan. She's written books for parents and books for people in their 40s and in their 50s and 60s. Um, You may know that she was a member of the New York Ethical Society, grew up in the Ethical Society, and her father, Max Grossman, um, was for many years a very active lay member and in later life was certified as an ethical culture leader. So, Ida Lashan is a famous person who's also an ethical culturist. Ida Lashan writes in her book, o to b 50 Again, When I was writing The Wonderful Crisis of Middle Age, I was having trouble crystallizing the idea of the necessity for continual growth and change at every phase of one's life. We were invited to a dinner party where I was seated next to a marine biologist. And I could tell from the expression on his face that he was as distressed as being stuck with me as I was with him. It seemed clear when we were introduced to each other that we couldn't possibly have any interest in common. However, over the years, I've learned an important lesson from my husband. If you really listen to other people, you can usually find something interesting about them. So I asked this man about his work and discovered that he was a fascinating person devoted to creatures under the sea. At one point, he asked me if I knew how a lobster could possibly grow when it had such a hard shell. I had to admit that this question had never been very high on my list of priorities. (laughs) He then proceeded to explain that when a lobster begins to feel crowded, let's say a one pound shell, By natural instinct, it knows the hard shell must be discarded and a bigger shell formed. The lobster is in great danger during this process, which as I recall takes about 48 hours. It can be eaten by other fish while it is completely naked and vulnerable. It can get tossed against a coral reef and badly damaged. But there is no alternative. If the hard shell is not given up, there can be no growth. The risk is essential. Well, we're talking today about middle age. Uh, Perhaps some of you know some people who are middle aged. (laughs) Does anyone here have perhaps a friend or a spouse who's middle aged? Um, Is anyone here middle aged yourself? (laughs) Um, As I was reading books about middle age, I came across one definition which I liked a lot. You are middle-aged when you are old enough to know better, but still young enough to do something about it. So with that in mind, is anyone here (laughs) middle-aged? Now if you are, you're in very good company. Since 1989, more than half of the United States population has been over 40 years, and in our current decade, the segment of the population that's between 45 and 54 years of age will increase by 46%. What's happening, of course is that the baby boomers, and I'm one of them, the baby boomers are now entering middle age, or some of us are well into middle age. And of course, whatever baby boomers do, because we're such a big demographic bump here in our society, whatever we do gets a lot of attention. It gets a lot of response from marketers, from the media, and so forth. And so all of a sudden, menopause is trendy. (laughs) And have you noticed that baseball caps have become very popular just at the moment when a lot of baby boomer men are losing their hair. This is not a coincidence. Um, There are lots and lots and lots of books now on the subject of middle age. When I went to the DC Public Library trying to find a book or two, my difficulty was not finding a book or two. The difficulty was that there were shelves upon shelves of books about midlife and middle age, and I had to choose from among them. And when I finally got to the counter to check out my books, and I had a stack of books, the lady checking out the books would like stamp a book and look at the title, and she'd look at me, and it'd be a book about being 40, and she'd look at me, and a book about being 50, and she'd look, and a book at 60. And she apparently decided that I looked ready for a midlife crisis, and I was entitled to have all these books. (laughs) One of the things I learned was that the term middle-aged is actually not liked very much. We prefer the phrase midlife. How many of us are in midlife? Um, So midlife seems to be a little bit more popular, except if I ask you to play a word association game and I say midlife, what do you think of? Crisis, Crisis. yes. So I don't know if midlife is so good. Those of us who are middle-aged are very positive about some aspects of this stage, but we also find ourselves either coping with or resisting, denying, fighting off some of the other aspects. Some of you may have noticed on my part, a new effort to fight off the signs of aging by coloring my hair. I did this this summer. An interesting thing happened to me. After I colored my hair, I looked into the mirror, and the first thought that popped into my head was, I'm going to audition for a chorus now that I no longer have gray hair. came as a surprise to me. I was not at all consciously aware that (laughs) hair color was a requirement for choruses, but apparently, (laughs) You know, I had some belief that with gray hair, they wouldn't take me. So I did, in fact, go and audition for a chorus, and I got in. I discovered when I got there, there were women with gray hair. Apparently, you can still sing with gray hair. But anyway, I'm in the chorus now. and Most of us have brown hair in this chorus. Um, The other night, at chorus rehearsal, we had a little lull, and so some of the sopranos were chatting. Julie, who is a very pretty young soprano and who works by day as a congressional staffer, was bemoaning the fact that she's getting so old, she's about to turn 24. So Carol and I, who were standing on either side of Julie, said, Julie, you're a baby. And then we went on to volunteer. I said, I'm going to be 46 on my next birthday. And Carol said, I'm 45. And Julie said, you admit this? (laughs) You tell people this in public? And Carol and I both said, yes. In fact, we love being in the 40s. The 40s are a wonderful stage of life. I wouldn't go back to being 20 for anything. Is it true, are the 40s really the best stage of life, or is middle age really the best time of life? Actually, the truth is that like any stage, middle age has its pluses and minuses. Middle age is an interesting time. It has its losses, its stresses and upheavals. It has its tasks, practical and psychological and spiritual. It's a time of great opportunity, holding the promise of significant growth. There are some broad generalizations about the nature of the midlife journey. There's a kind of road map which can be very helpful to those of us who are in the midst of this journey. Um, what I'd like to do here this morning is first ask you to do with me some sentence completion exercises, just to com- kind of increase our awareness of some of the joys and some of the problems of middle age. Um, I'd like to list a few of those practical and spiritual tasks. And then I'd like to describe the road life of the midlife transition with some applications to love and to work and to faith. Faith here being understood in an ethical humanist uh, sense. Let's do th- I'm going to start with sentence completions. Now, you're going to have to make a decision here because the sentence completions are going to start with the phrase, now that I am in the second half of my life, And you'll have to decide whether or not this applies to you. There's a little arithmetic to do now. You take your current age, you multiply by two. Do you think you'll still be alive then? (laughs) If so, you are not in the second half of your life. If not, you're in the second half of your life. Um, If second half of life does not apply to you, simply translate to when I am or when I will be in the second half of my life. Um, personally, approaching my 46th birthday, I think I am probably in the second half of my life. But you, you decide for yourself. This is a personal decision. I will not ask you to reveal your decision on this. But here we go. So just remember, if you need to translate, that's fine. Now that I am in the second half of my life, I notice. I notice. I am aware, now that I am in the second half of my life, I am aware. It's possible that for some of these you won't get a response right away. That's fine, maybe later in the day something will pop into your mind. Let's try another one. Now that I am in the second half of my life, I regret. Now that I am in the second half of my life, I fear. Now that I am in the second half of my life, I am angry about. Now that I'm in the second half of my life, I don't have to. Now that I am in the second half of my life, I am hopeful that, Now that I'm in the second half of my life, I am excited about. Now that I am in the second half of my life, I am free to. Now, if we were to poll you on the answers, the things that you came up with, I'm sure we would find very, very different responses. First of all, just because each person is unique, but also because middle age is a very long time, Um, beginning perhaps in the 40s and lasting well into the 70s for many people. Life patterns are so varied for people at this stage of life. For example, one 46-year-old woman may be an empty nester, while another 46-year-old woman has very young children. One 46-year-old woman may be looking forward to retiring in just a few years, while another is just starting out on a new career, perhaps after the kids are in school or have left home. And still another 46-year-old woman may be struggling to cope with the problems of aging parents. Still, given all these individual differences and the large range of possible lifestyles that are occurring at this stage, there probably are some common themes. Our fears and regrets will certainly include things that have to do with physical changes and recognition of the inevitability of death and regret over dreams which we probably never will realize. At the same time, there are many joys. We're aware of new freedoms in our life at this stage. And often we come into middle age with greater self-acceptance. The list of regrets and hopes suggests some of the tasks of midlife. Um, Broadly, I think there are two tasks. First of all, to accept the inevitability of death and at least some decline as we age. And second, to live our lives as fully as we can in the second half. Accepting the inevitability of death and decline involves some practical tasks, making practical preparations for death and for old age. For example, have you made a will? Is the Ethical Society in your will? <laughs> How about living wills or advanced directives? The states around here now, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, all do honor advanced directives. So have you taken the time to give directions to your physician about what you want done in the event of terminal illness? Have you made financial preparations? And here kind of balance is needed, making sure that there will be enough set aside for later years, but also enough to enjoy the freedom that you now may be discovering in middle age. And finally, in later middle age, you need to be researching living options for the later years. And of course, there are spiritual preparations to be made as well. What kind of legacy are you leaving behind? What is it that will live after you? The second task has to do with living fully in the second half of one's life. And I think a big part of this is to remove unnecessary clutter. What's cluttering up your life? What physical objects clutter your life right now? What time commitments clutter your life? What outmoded beliefs clutter your life? Removing clutter is a way of valuing your time. A couple years ago, a person was joining the Northern Virginia Ethical Society and when we got to the part about making a financial pledge, the person said, I don't believe in giving money to organizations. I only believe in giving time. It's a, a point of view that may have some validity. Um, I bit my tongue and didn't talk about, see, now, everybody gave time and nobody gave any money here, how would that work? I didn't want to think about that. I just, okay, that's a point of view. But I was reflecting on that recently and thinking that certainly I want to be judicious in the way that I give my money, in the way I use my money, in the way I spend my money. But it occurred to me that at the end of my life, probably there will be some money left over. But on the other hand, there will be no time left over. So I've decided that as important as as it is to be judicious about money, it's essential that I am judicious about the way I use my time. To help us use our time well and to live fully for all that time that is left to us, I think it is very helpful to be aware of the broad outlines of the midlife journey now as i mention these outlines please keep in mind that of course everyone is unique everyone will go through this journey in his her, her own unique way and furthermore the journey may be repeated several times uh, perhaps occurring in one area of life such as work in one decade of your life, and perhaps in relationships in in quite another decade, and still another time a, a, a parallel faith journey. So just be aware that everyone is unique, and that cycles may occur in different areas of life at different times, but still, almost all the books about midlife, although using different words, seem to be describing a very similar kind of cycle. First of all, as we end the youthful period of our life, We have been in a phase of building up, accomplishing, achieving. And a thing, in fact, about middle age is that simultaneously we are doing some things which are characteristic of youth and then some things which are characteristic of later years. So the youthful side of midlife is to be engaged in building up and accomplishing things. This aspect of life often has an external focus. We're accomplishing things in the world, and the rewards are often tangible rewards. Many of our obligations are externally imposed obligations. But eventually there comes a time of letting go, a stage of turning inward. and This stage may last a very long time. But that's not the end. Eventually, having done the inner work and become clearer about who we are at our core, we then journey outward again and reengage with the world, but in a somewhat different way from the building up stage. For in this journeying outward stage, we reengage with the world not so much out of externally imposed obligations, but through internally chosen commitments which express who we have discovered ourselves to be when we were spending the time on the inner journey. Um, A couple of notes here. The external life circumstances may not change while we're doing the inner work. It isn't necessary to quit your job or leave your spouse or leave your faith while doing this work. But what happens is that even though the external circumstances may remain in place, We hold these things differently. And of course, sometimes people do feel a necessity to make some drastic life changes. Sometimes people do leave their job or their spouse or their faith, often causing a lot of pain in the process, pain to themselves and, and pains to other people. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes this is what they must do. On the other hand, some of the pain might have been avoided had the person understood that it wasn't so much they needed to change external circumstances, is that they needed a, just a time for withdrawing temporarily to do some inner work. Often the movement to the inner stage, the inner journey, is precipitated by something that feels like a crisis. We often don't go gently into this stage. Before we get to the inner journey, we're in a period of time when life feels flat or boring, meaningless or suffocating. And it seems to us that we have to do something drastic. It's a dangerous time. I think what's happening here is that we're in the naked lobster stage at this point when we've needed to cast off a shell that no longer fits us, but we have not yet created the new shell. And thus we are, like the lobster, um, in danger of being eaten by big fish or being cast against a coral reef. Let's look at some examples of how the pattern of building up, journeying inward, and then returning again for re-engagement plays itself out in love, in work, and in faith. Susan Campbell is an author of a wonderful book about the couple's journey. In fact, the book is called The Couple's Journey, and she describes the stages as romance, power struggle, stability, commitment, and co-creation. These are the the way that the love aspect of this midlife journey plays out. Romance, in Campbell's terminology, I think corresponds to the building up. We're establishing something. Um, In some ways, this is the easy part of the journey. Um, Not necessarily easy to find romance, but once you have it, it's real easy to be in it. It's fun, it's exciting. We attach to someone else. Our dreams are fulfilled, and this time we know this is the right person. This time is really true love. Can you remember a time when you were in true love? The first blush of excitement, the thrill? I can remember being too excited to eat at this stage. That's how wonderful it was. But eventually, disillusionment sets in. You're not what I expected and now we're in the naked lobster stage. Some possible outcomes here when I realize that you're not what I expected. You're not the perfect person I thought you were. Often at this point, we end the relationship and we seek another person. We seek to recreate this wonderful romantic stage with someone else, hoping that this next person will really be the right one. Or we stay in the relationship but with the intention of getting the other person to shape up. If only you would change, then everything would be fine. And so we are now in the power struggle stage of the relationship. Some people remain in this stage till death do them part. It's a power struggle that lasts for years and years and years and years. Others end the relationship angrily. And relationships that end during the power struggle stage are often the very messy, unpleasant, hostile divorces. Another possible outcome is that at some point we recognize that the other person probably isn't going to change. I'll have to accept him or her, warts and all. If this happens, the relationship then moves to the journeying inward stage, which Campbell calls stability. Here I begin to focus on my own goals I accept responsibility for taking care of myself and meeting my own needs while staying committed to the relationship. A couple of possible outcomes here. Sometimes we each get so good at taking care of ourselves and kind of living and letting live with the other person that eventually we just drift apart and the relationship ends. This is your friendly divorce when this happens. But sometimes, The couple reconnects. They've done the inner work, and now they come back together at what Campbell calls the commitment stage. Each person individually prepared to take responsibility for the quality of the relationship, for doing those things which are simultaneously good for me and good for the relationship. And couples that have completed this journey inward and now journeying outward, express their journeying outward stage in the co-creation phase of marriage in which together they make significant contributions to the larger world. Meanwhile, back at the office, a parallel journey is going on. Author Janet Hagberg describes this journey in terms of stages of power. The youthful years are spent in building up and moving from positions of powerlessness to power by association, attaching oneself perhaps to a mentor, to an effective boss, and then eventually getting to the point where you have arrived in your work. This is a stage called power by symbols. This is a stage where you're really being productive, um, where you're in the height of your career. Perhaps you can think yourself of, of your own work journey when you were first starting out, perhaps in very unsure, and then eventually you began to learn the ropes, and perhaps by now you really, Feel yourself uh, to be in sort of the full flower of your capacities as a worker. You've made it. You've arrived in whatever your work can be. And incidentally, it, this doesn't happen just in business. Um, it happens also in the peace movement. It, this is not about what kind of work you do. It's just about the way one relates to one work. Many, many people stay happily in this power-by-symbol stage, the stage of having arrived, forever. Uh, They continue to rise in the company, or in the agency, or in the movement, or at least continue to find challenges and rewards in their work. But for many, there is another naked lobster stage. There's some crisis of integrity and meaning. Perhaps you don't get the promotion you expected. Or you do get the promotion, but so what? The often painful process of questioning the value and meaning of our work leads to another inward journey. Stages that Hagberg calls power by reflection, and that that stage eventually leads to a stage of power by purpose. However, by reflection, is the inner time when we're asking all the questions. What does my work really mean? What does it matter that I've done this? What values really are important to me? And eventually, we find answers to those questions, and so we come back. And again, it's not necessarily the case that we change any external circumstances. We may continue to do the exact same job, while all this journeying is going on. Or in some cases, we find that we do need to change our work. Now, I have to apologize at this point. This is about all I have time to say about the journey of love and the the journey of work. And I've really been speeding through this, um, trying to show you how we build up and then we let go, turn inward, before we once again re-engage with the world in a new way. I encourage you to do some studying on your own if if the descriptions of the roadmaps of the love relationship and the work and power relationship intrigue you. Uh, I want to turn now to the faith journey, which also has its aspects of building up and then letting go, journeying inward and outward. Um, Again, Janet Hagberg has inspired me. She describes three stages of the building up stage. The first stage is a recognition of a higher power. Now, let me stop here before any rationalists have apoplexy, <laughs> when I talk about higher power. Um, because I think that we also, in ethical humanism, have our state of recognizing a higher power. Um, for us, it is the power of ethical principles, which we recognize as being a real force in our life, not some supernatural being. But the power of ethical principles is the higher power that we recognize. Still in the building up phase, then we go to a stage of learning about faith. So in traditional religion, it would be Bible class, and here it's relationship building and eliciting the best and introduction to ethical culture, and we learn about our faith, and then we enter into a productive phase, a time when we're responsible leaders in our faith community. Maybe we're Sunday school teachers or board members or committee members. Uh, we also see our work life as an extension of our faith. And we endeavor to exercise ethical principles in the workplace. Again, many, many people stay in this stage quite happily. And I think it's great that some people do stay in this stage uh, because they're probably the people that accomplish the most in the world. They continue to do more and more. And we need people to stay in this stage. But some people, once again, go through the part of casting off the shell, spending some time in that naked, vulnerable stage. Often what occurs is a crisis of faith. In traditional religions, it's the time when God lets one down. I've been a good person and still I've suffered. Or somebody I know who's been a good person dies of cancer at age 35. Where was God? That's the crisis of faith in traditional religion, but I think ethical humanists also can experience a traditional crisis. When we see that ethical principles don't always work, that, in fact, good people suffer and wicked prosper, and that humanity often seems to be getting worse, not better. And in our workplace, where we've tried to be ethical people, we find that the more we learn to recognize ethical dilemmas, the more we recognize ethical dilemmas. And some of them are just not capable of any solution, at least as far as we can see. That the harder we try to be ethical, the more we're aware of the insoluble problems. Some people at this stage simply become cynical and give up their faith. But others stay with the process of painful reflection, which eventually leads to a new kind of faith commitment. I believe that our founder, Felix Adler, experienced a midlife crisis of faith, and then succeeded in working through that crisis to develop a mature faith. His biographer, Horace Fries, who was also a son-in-law, describes three phases of Adler's life work. The first phase being one of free religion and social reform. The second, Fries calls religion of duty. And that was the name of a book Adler wrote, probably when he was around 40 years old. And then finally, his mature and unique ethical philosophy. I think most of you know that our founder started out in reformed Judaism, but reformed himself a little too much Um, And so in his early 20s, he started a new religion, which was really a religion of ethical idealism combined with utopianism. He believed in the power of the ethical ideal, which should be expressed by doing good in the world. Um, In this phase of Adler's work, this is the period of time when the New York Society for Ethical Culture was founded, and that group founded the Visiting Nurses Association and the First Free Kindergarten on the East Coast and the Working Man's School, which eventually became the Ethical Culture Schools. This was a period of tremendous accomplishment. But after about 10 or 20 years of this, Adler became discouraged. He First of all, ethical culture was not exactly sweeping the country. Uh, and secondly, despite all the hard work and the good work that the New York Society was doing and some of the other ethical societies were doing, not much was really changing. We we hadn't really arrived at any kind of utopia. And so Adler went through a kind of crisis when he began to question, why bother? Why try to live by ethical principles? Why work for justice when it seems so hopeless? Not much is changing. That was his naked lobster stage. But eventually he came out of this, and he came up with an answer called the religion of duty. And the religion of duty means that I believe that there is a power working for righteousness in this world, and although I will not live to see the results, I will not live to see the day that justice triumphs, still I will choose to align myself with this force for justice and I will act out of a sense of duty, not expecting much in the way of accomplishments in the here and now, but I will align myself with the force for justice. Adler continued during this inner journey to reflect and eventually developed his mature philosophy, a constellation of interrelated ideas, ethical manifold, intrinsic worth, and supreme ethical rule. Ethical manifold, sometimes Adler refers to it as the supreme holy community or the spiritual universe, means that there is an arrangement of human beings, a relationship of all persons, past, present, and future, such that each one of us is unique, and irreplaceable, and the unique qualities in each of us have the effect of calling forth the unique qualities in the others. And it is the unique qualities in each person which are their best qualities. And because I am a member of this spiritual universe, this ideal relationship of humanity, I therefore have intrinsic worth. I deserve respect, and you likewise deserve respect, simply by virtue of your existence as a member of this ideal community. And from this intrinsic worth and this belief in an ideal community, Adler derives his supreme ethical rule, that I should act in each situation with the intention of calling forth the best that is in you, and through that effort I will bring to light the best that is in myself. I think it is not a coincidence that Adler began to develop his mature philosophy as he entered middle age, and he completed it in late middle age. By the way, the name of the book in which he lays out his mature philosophy is called An Ethical Philosophy of Life. If we are middle aged, I'd like to suggest that it's time for each of us to write our own ethical philosophy of life. This is a third task for us after facing the inevitability of death and decline, after making changes in our life so that we can get the most out of the second half, it's time to write our own ethical philosophy of life so that we can pass on a legacy to others. Uh, Now, Adler's ethical philosophy of life happened to be a 380-page tome. Uh, I'm not suggesting that you also need to write a 380-page tome but I am suggesting that each of us take seriously the aim of writing our own ethical philosophy of life. A personal ethical record, written not so much in words as in deeds, written in life choices, written in commitments, a record that states who we are, what we believe in, what we stand for. A record that shows we have built up a life But have also turned inward to discover what's at the core. And if we are middle aged, the time is now. For we are old enough to know better, and yet young enough to do something about it. Thank you.